Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Out front next, house-to-house combat, the fighting in Gaza's second largest city ramping up tonight and civilian casualties are mounting this hour. Plus, President Biden revealing he wouldn't be running for re-election, except for one thing. This is voters open up about why they are giving DeSantis another look over Trump. That is the latest in our Voters Out Front series. And George Santos's second act, making new cameos tonight. The price, guess what, has gone up. That's the old supply demand and people are paying up. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, surrounded. Israel says its forces have now encircled Gaza's second largest city. There is now fierce fighting inside Khan Yunis. That is where the civilian population actually has ballooned over the past two months, as people have been told to go from northern Gaza further south towards Khan Yunis in so many cases. And now reports of house-to-house battles there. According to an Israeli commander, quote, we are in the midst, most intense Day-to-day since the beginning of the ground operation in terms of terrorists killed, the number of firefights, and the use of firepower from the land and air. And this ground operation now posing a serious threat to displaced Palestinian civilians. As I said, so many of them had come from further north here, many of them now lining the narrow streets after being forced from their homes. And just north of Khan Yunis, new video appears to show artillery fire near two Red Crescent ambulances. Uh, again, appears, but you can see this uh, playing out on your screen right now. And earlier, I spoke to a spokesman for the Red Cross, Hisham Mana, uh, who is in Gaza. I've spoken to him many times over these past couple of months. I asked him today what he's actually experiencing. And these past hours that the IDF says are the most intense. Here's what he said. It's chaotic. It's panic. It's constant fear. And it's this self of entrapment that is prevailing now. Chaos, entrapment, and he's choosing to be there, uh, choosing to be there to continue with his job. His wife has left. He has not met his newborn son. Now Israel claims that it's trying to ease all of those fears by dropping leaflets like what you're looking at on your screen with that QR code that directs people where to go to the safe areas. I asked Mana if it's working and he'd seen these leaflets and he said yes, he absolutely has seen them. And the reality, he says, is that they are not working because there's no 3G or 4G cell service uh, as he has seen. He says there's barely 2G in many cases, which means it's impossible to actually scan the QR code in those cases. And he said that even if people can open the link to the IDF evacuation map, the map doesn't show a person where they are on the map or how to get anywhere near the evacuation uh, map area. It just literally shows this. 
Of course, this puts more lives at risk. And last night I asked a spokesman for the IDF about a report that two civilians have been killed for every Hamas militant. The IDF later tried to clarify, saying that it's uh, likely less than two civilians for every Hamas militant. They didn't elaborate on the details here, though, but I asked Mana about this report and what level of civilian suffering he is seeing right now. We still have two of our own staff members who were killed uh, in airstrikes with members of their families weeks ago, and they have not yet been found buried. So I, I would not be so sure about this equation two to one or less than two to one. This is not acceptable by all means when we address the respect of the rules of war. A war that the United States now says may end in a few weeks' time. Officials telling CNN that the Gaza ground operation could end by January. And that is where Alex Marquardt begins our coverage tonight out front live in Tel Aviv. I mean, Alex, the fight inside Khan Yunis, the second biggest city in Gaza, escalating tonight, fierce uh, house-to-house battles. You had so many civilians who had fled there. What more are you learning? Well, Aaron, uh, Israel's top general says that the country has now entered the third phase of this conflict. Israel's military trying to secure the gains that they have made in, in the north before moving on to the south. Prime Minister Netanyahu was also very blunt in, in comments that he made. He said that tonight the ground shook in Khan Yunus and Jabalia. Khan Yunus, of course, the biggest city in the south. Jabalia is a refugee camp in the northern part of the strip uh, that uh, Israel says has been a holdout uh, for Hamas. Meanwhile, Aaron, we are hearing some pointed criticism from the Biden administration, from the State Department, a spokesman for the State Department saying that they do not believe that Israel is doing enough to help get aid into Gaza, aid like fuel, food and water that is so desperately needed, especially as so many people are fleeing even farther south. Israeli strikes tonight in southern Gaza as Israel expands its campaign. New satellite images show dozens of Israel's armored vehicles near the main road heading to southern Gaza's biggest city, Khan Yunus. Israel's top general said Tuesday that the military is operating, quote, in the heart of Khan Yunus, where Israeli officials have said Hamas's top leadership has dug in. According to a journalist who filmed this video, IDF troops moving south fired on civilians and journalists. Airstrikes have been seen near the city, Chaos as the wounded are rushed to the hospital and the dead are counted. Amid the renewed fighting, hospitals continue to overflow. We are facing a huge problem, this doctor in Han Yunus says. God forbid if we get more patients, there's no space for them at all. Many in Han Yunus have gone there from northern Gaza after Israel told more than one million people to evacuate. Now they're being told to move again to so-called safe zones, Though humanitarian officials and civilians say that nowhere is safe. And we need the, the war to stop. Ceasefire. I wish because nobody will win in this war. A senior UN official says the civilian death toll is rapidly increasing. Overall, according to the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health, almost 16,000 people in Gaza have been killed since October 7th. In an interview with Outfront, an IDF spokesman conceded that the majority of deaths could be civilians, saying that if two Palestinian civilians are killed for every Hamas militant, that ratio would be, quote, tremendously positive. 
if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. Spokesperson Jonathan Conricus later admitted he should have chosen his words more carefully. Amid the onslaught in Gaza, Hamas today claimed a barrage of rockets fired at Tel Aviv. Despite the Iron Dome intercepts, the large black smoke of an impact was seen north of the city, and shrapnel plunged to the ground, here narrowly missing two people walking on the sidewalk. And Aaron, a major question is how much longer can these Israeli military operations last at the scale and the level that we're seeing now around Khan Yunus? Uh, officials, both American and Israeli, tell my colleagues and me that they do expect that high-intensity operations uh, will continue for several more weeks before there's a transition to what they call low-intensity operations. Those more low-intensity, uh, more tactical operations could happen on a, on a very localized scale, for example, going after uh, specific uh, Hamas commanders. Now, what that means for the time frame is that we could see these high-intensity operations lasting through the end of the calendar year before that transition happens in January. But that sort of more low-intensity phase, Aaron, could last for quite some time. There has been private pressure from the United States on Israel uh, to scale back their military operations. Uh, the U.S. is also uh, telling that they cannot replicate in the south what they did in the north and just frankly telling Israel that they are quickly losing international support. Now, in terms of what Israel's response was to this uh, message, a senior administration official tells my colleague MJ Lee that they wouldn't call it receptive. Aaron? Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Alex Marquardt. I want to go to Barack Ravid now, our global and political uh, affairs analyst. So, Alex, you just heard Alex say that the U.S. expects the ground war to end by January. And he's also talking about that pressure uh, that they've been putting on Israel and that the response, uh, as MJ Lee was reporting, was, was not receptive uh, from the Israeli side. What are you learning? Hi, Aaron. I think that what I heard from several uh, U.S. officials in recent days was that, again, uh, they would want to, the, this, to see this high-intensity phase end as soon as possible, but they admit at the same time that they do not see Joe Biden uh, telling the Israelis that they need to stop now immediately or call for a ceasefire anytime soon. Uh, so I think what is left for the Biden administration to do, if that's the case, is to basically try and influence what Israel is doing on the ground. And actually, uh, they managed to do some things quite successfully. All right. So you're focused tonight, I know, uh, very specifically on something that didn't get a lot of attention. And it's important for uh, people watching to understand an announcement from the Biden administration that you believe says a lot about where the U.S. stands on Israel right now. A very powerful message and and one that we haven't seen maybe forever, if not uh, in decades. What is it? Well, Aaron, one of the things that happened today and not a lot of people noticed is that the Biden administration uh, imposed sanctions today on uh, Israeli settlers uh, in the West Bank. Uh, and this is uh, sanctions that were focused on Israeli settlers who were involved or are involved 
in attacks against uh, uh, Palestinian civilians uh, in uh, in the West Bank. Uh, the sanctions are mostly travel bans uh, against those people. At, at first stage, this is several dozen people. So while this might be or might sound small, this is the first time any U.S. administration is doing this since the mid-90s when the Clinton administration hmm. did a similar thing. And when you have an Israeli government that parts of it are basically the political wing of those people who attack Palestinians in the West Bank, that's yeah. a quite significant message by the Biden administration. And, and crucial that you raise it, because as you point out, uh, it's, it, it seems small. Many wouldn't notice it, but, but sometimes it is the small things that matter so much. Now, in Khan Yunus right now, where you've had so many Palestinian uh, civilians right initially flee, right? And now the uh, Israeli military says that they've encircled Khan Yunus. Uh, it's a known base, of course, for the military wing of Hamas. It's the hometown of the Hamas leader, Yahya Sinwar, uh, who is known to be the mastermind of October 7th. Does Israel believe that Sinwar is actually there now, that he's still there? Uh, everything I hear from Israeli officials in recent weeks is that they believe both Ichya Sinwar and Hamas's uh, uh, military wing commander, uh, uh, Muhammad Def, uh, the second mastermind of the October 7th attacks, that both of them and several other officials are in Khan Yunis, basically since the beginning of the war. Uh, and this is the aim of this operation. Um, if there's one thing Israel wants to achieve during this operation in Khan Yunis is to capture uh, Sinwar and Muhammad Def dead or alive. And Israel wants to do it not only because they are the masterminds of October 7th, but because they believe that once they take them out, it will be much easier to destroy Hamas. All right, Barack, thank you very much. As always, appreciate uh, your uh, incredible reporting. Out front now, the Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee and is a veteran who served uh, in Iraq. So uh, I appreciate your time, Congressman. So the U.S. expects, yeah. and we you heard kind of the context around this from both Barack and Alex, right? They expect this uh, heavy ground operation to end in January. There's a lot of desire from the U.S. Uh, for that to happen. Have you been briefed at all about the timeline? Not specifically. I mean, let's be clear. We want Israel to succeed in eradicating Hamas. Neither Palestinians nor Israelis can be safe and secure if Hamas still exists. But our concern is that Israel's tactics right now risk not just failing to eradicate Hamas, but actually strengthening its base of support. And this is a fundamental principle <coughs> of counterinsurgency, that you cannot create more terrorists than you kill. And that's what Israel risks doing when they have such high civilian casualty numbers. All right. So and to that front, I spoke last night with the IDF spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, and I asked him about the AFP reporting that Israel's killed two civilians for every one Hamas fighter in Gaza. Um, and he said uh, that if that ratio is confirmed and, and the way he laid it out last night, he seemed to think it would be. Uh, but he characterized that ratio as tremendously positive. Two civilians dead for every Hamas militant. Um, do you agree that that is a tremendously positive ratio? No, I think it's dead wrong. I think it's dead wrong based on our experience. Look, we looked at this very carefully when we recognized in Iraq and Afghanistan that we were not in a traditional force-on-force -force military battle. We were fighting a counterinsurgency. And the famed general, U.S. General Stanley McChrystal actually commissioned a study on this. He determined that for every one civilian you kill, 
it serves to recruit about 10 terrorists. I mean, by that number, uh, Israel so far killed about uh, 5,000 uh, Hamas terrorists, but in the process, they've recruited about 100,000 new adherents. And this is really bad news for Israel. Uh, it's bad news in just in terms of their potential for military success here, which we do want them to achieve. You know, there's, we're talking about 10,000 uh, innocent civilians so far killed right now. And that just, I mean, that's a bad situation in a, in a place that actually when the war began, there was a poll just before October 7th that showed that six out of 10 residents of the Gaza Strip did not support Hamas. So Israel was actually going into a favorable uh, situation where most of the Palestinians uh, were against Hamas as well. And the concern is that they've actually turned most of the Palestinians against Israel. That would be unbelievable. All right. Thank you very much, Congressman. I appreciate your time. Seth Moulton. And next, a shouting match today in the Senate. An incredible thing. There was a briefing about USAID to Ukraine, which is hanging by a thread as I speak. And then the Ukrainian President Zelensky mysteriously cancels a briefing to Congress at the very last minute. Suddenly didn't happen, even though it was drafted and ready to go, we understand. Live tonight out front in Ukraine and on Capitol Hill, Plus, our Voters Out Front series. Tonight, you'll hear from Iowa voters who once were very solidly for Trump with a huge lead, now taking a look at the other candidates. I like what Nikki Haley's doing. I like um, DeSantis, too. And tonight, Kim Jong-un breaking down in tears. You'll see, and we'll tell you why. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. New tonight, a shouting match in the Senate. As American support for Ukraine is now hanging by a thread, there was a classified briefing on Ukraine, and it just completely went off the rails. Senators started shouting at each other, and they were shouting about border security. Republicans are demanding that any aid to Ukraine be tied to uh, border security on the southern border. And as the shouting match goes down, then President Zelensky of Ukraine, who was scheduled to make an urgent appeal to senators in that same classified briefing, right, he was going to be patched in, had everything prepared, mysteriously cancels due to a, quote, last-minute matter. No further explanation was given. 
Well, we're covering the story from Washington and Ukraine tonight. So let's begin first with Manu out front on Capitol Hill. So, Manu, you have the shouting match over this aid. It completely devolves. And we understand people are yelling and screaming. Um, and, and, and Zelensky cancels his appearance all of a sudden. I'm not saying those, those two things don't appear to be related, but this is what happened. I mean, a lot of intrigue. Uh, this is going ahead of what is a, a crucial vote tomorrow. Yeah, look, this briefing was meant to convince senators that it was time to move on aid to Ukraine or risk seeing Russia take over Ukraine, seeing Ukraine collapse if U.S. aid does not continue. But the debate over immigration and tightening border security really took, has been taking front and center. This whole fight publicly also took place place. Privately, Republicans say that there need to be changes, tighter restrictions on border policies at the southern border before they agree to moving forward on aid to Ukraine as long as well as aid to Israel. That's why things broke down behind closed doors. As Chuck Schumer said that it was Mitch McConnell who initially, quote, hijacked this briefing when he kicked it over to a Republican senator who laid out their border concerns. It was immediately hijacked by Leader McConnell. And even one of them started, was disrespectful and started screaming at the gen, one of the generals and challenging him to why he didn't go to the border. We want to help Ukraine and Israel, but we've got to have the Democrats recognize that the trade here, the deal is we stop the open border. They don't want to do that. So Republicans are just walking out of the briefing because the people there are not willing to actually discuss what it takes to get a deal done. And Aaron, tomorrow, Senate Democrats are teeing up a key procedural vote to try to move ahead on a package. But since there's no deal on border security, Republicans expect it to block it, which means Israel and Ukraine aid continues to hang in the balance at this critical time. Certainly does. And of course, the Pentagon warning today that without more funding allocated, uh, they could have to really uh, stop providing Ukraine what it needs. All right. Thank you very much, Manu. And as this crucial aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance at this hour. Uh, the head of Advika in eastern Ukraine, where some of the fiercest fighting is now happening, says that Russian forces have opened up two new fronts in their assault on the town that has now become the epicenter of the battle in the east. And a corn is out front. At a warehouse stocked with humanitarian aid, 23-year-old police officer Dimitro Solovy picks up supplies. Food, water, hygiene products and a generator are on the list. He's part of the White Angels unit and they're heading to his hometown of Avdivka in the Donetsk region on the Eastern Front, where one of the most fierce and bloody battles is being waged in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I was born in this town, he tells me. My neighbours are there, my relatives, my friends. It's my duty to help them. We are their hope. But getting to Avdivka is a death trap. Shortly after leaving us with his GoPro rolling, he spots Russian shelling through the windscreen. Look, the bomb has landed. Report incoming of an ugly bastard. And there's another one, he tells his colleague. Russian artillery, mortars and drones target the road. And yet Dimitro remains calm. This perilous journey has become routine, despite multiple close calls. Driving past the sign that proudly states Avdivka is Ukraine, the town of once 30,000 residents is now deserted, devoid of the living, as almost every single building has been shelled. But surprisingly, some people still live here. 
including Dr Vitaly Sintnik, head of the local hospital. Diagnosed with terminal cancer, he's decided he's not going anywhere. We have a job and we do it, he explains. He called the White Angels to evacuate a man who'd just been injured from shrapnel. As they load him into the van, the idle chatter is interrupted. Incoming. It's a mortar, explains the doctor. Sometimes it rustles and then bang. That would be a tank. As the explosions get louder, it's time to go. This is the road to Avdivka. There is one way in, one way out. We are not allowed to travel to the town, which is 17 kilometres away. The military has banned all media, saying it's just too dangerous. But for the White Angels, they travel on this road multiple times a week, risking their lives to support the less than 1,300 people still living in the town. As the White Angels begin the dangerous drive out, Dimitro reflects. It's very sad what's happening to my town, but one day we'll rebuild Avdivka and I will live there with my grandchildren. We just need to believe. A belief that keeps this community among the ruins alive. Erin, uh, this war is approaching the end of its second year and US aid is absolutely critical. It cannot be underestimated. And yet people here in Ukraine know that that's under threat. It, if it dries up, it will be absolutely uh, devastating. Uh, President Zelensky, as you mentioned, was supposed to hold a, a last-ditch appeal with the, the House and uh, the Senate. That was cancelled at the very last minute, which seemed very strange considering what is at stake. We contacted the President's office and got no response. But what we can tell you, Aaron, is that we spent time with soldiers today on the Eastern Front fighting that battle in Avdivka. They say this is difficult. Sacrifices are being made, blood and treasure is being spent, but they are willing to fight. They just need the weapons. All right, Anna, thank you very much. And of course, President Zelensky cancelling that speech, uh, hugely significant. And as I said, we just simply don't know the reason for it. Uh, but it is a very unexpected uh, move, to say the least. Anna Korn from Kiev, thank you so much. And next, President Biden making a stunning admission. He says if it weren't for one thing, he wouldn't be running for president this time around. Will he regret those words? Plus, disgraced former Congressman George Santos is now charging even more and successfully charging more for videos like this. I knew you were trouble when you walked in. That's me. Bye. And people are paying. Tonight, President Biden saying this. And this is the first time that he has said this publicly, quote, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win. It comes as Trump is making his second visit to Iowa in less than a week. Here he is in Davenport, Iowa. And the real question here is whether the voters are still with him. Or are they giving the other candidates a second look ahead of voting, which begins now in just weeks? Jeff Salini reports from Iowa for our series, Voters Out Front. 
Sally Hoffman has been thinking and praying about the Republican presidential race. I pray for the direction this country is going, and I pray for the candidates. As candidates have descended on Iowa, Hoffman has watched with an open mind. When we first met earlier this year, she had high praise for Donald Trump and curiosity for two of his rivals. I like what Trump has done. I, to me, it's huge for her to have three um, U.S. Supreme Court justices during his term, and that uh, I'm a big pro-life proponent. I like what Nikki Haley's doing. I like um, DeSantis, too. So kind of in that range. Now, as Republican hopefuls scramble for support six weeks before the Iowa caucuses open the 2024 campaign, Hoffman is among those looking for a fresh start. I'm thankful for what Trump did when he was in office, but I, um, I've been a little bit disappointed in Trump lately. I'm just veering away from him and leaning towards DeSantis. He seems like a man who, when he believes something, he'll stand by it. And that's what I appreciate about him. As fall turns to winter in Iowa, it's a season of choosing. Are you guys Iowa or Illinois residents? Iowa. Iowa. Perfect. Have you already filled out one of our Commit to Caucus cards? And a critical moment for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley to show that the Republican primary is still a contest, not a coronation. I'm very impressed with, with Nikki Haley, and um, uh, I just hope she gets the nomination. Roger Dvorak voted for Trump, but believes his criminal cases are a distraction. Whether he's guilty or not, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I, I just don't think he can be effective as leader of the country. There's little doubt Trump remains a driving force in the campaign. We're going to win the Iowa caucuses. He's in Iowa again tonight, the second time in four days, to try and maintain his dominance. Yet exhaustion with the former president, once whispered, easily comes alive in conversations with Republicans, like Karen Hanna, who also voted for Trump, but is now weighing an alternative. What is it that gives you pause about uh, President Trump? I think all that's going on, and um, I think Ron DeSantis is a little bit more solid and um, less drama, you know, just all the things that Trump's going through the courts so unsure about that but no i like ron desantis what he stands for the question is how many iowans are inclined against the grain of the trump controlled gop as they make their final decisions i'm looking at nikki haley and of course desantis and vivek and trump if <laughs> Ann Walford's laughter underscores the expressions of many Republicans, a reluctance to be with Trump now, but a pledge to be with him in the end. If he's the nominee, I will vote for him. That sentiment resonates on the Hoffman farm outside Cedar Rapids, where Sally said she too will support yeah, Trump yeah. if he's the party's choice. But for now, he's not her choice, and she hopes Iowa can spark a new direction for the country. I think it's more of a wide open race. Uh, it's more I think, of a wide open race. Right. I, I think... It won't surprise me if Trump gets in. It won't surprise me if he doesn't, isn't the nominee. And um, I'm just hoping that DeSantis might be the one. But I think it's more wide open. So the former president is in Iowa tonight. And Aaron, he just responded to those comments that President Biden uh, made earlier this evening, uh, saying he wouldn't be running if Trump wasn't in the race. Uh, Trump, we are told, uh, said, I doubt that. And he said, they don't want me to be running. Uh, 
But Aaron, the interesting thing is Trump's still in Iowa. Uh, he really is trying to hold on to his lead there. But there are many voters who have many open minds and are days of conversations there. But they are turning their attention here to Alabama because that is where the Republican presidential debate is tomorrow night. So all of Trump's rivals coming here. Of course, the voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, other early voting states watching this debate very carefully. Aaron. That's right. And of course, uh, you know, he, he's not there. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff Zeleny. Uh, Harry Anton's here to go beyond the numbers. So, Harry, Trump right now, in terms of the polls that we've got, right, you yeah. got a more than 20 point lead. Yeah. Gigantic. Huge. OK, over <laughs> as as some might say, without an H um, over the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, over uh, the South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, you know, both of whom, right, have have had momentum. Um, they are the closest for second in Iowa. So how many candidates have come back from that sort of a deficit to actually succeed? Only two at this point since 1980. George H.W. Bush in 1980, Dick Gephardt in 1988. And of course, we've had a ton of caucuses, a dozen or so on the Democratic and Republican side. So at this particular point, look, there's a chance that either DeSantis or Hillary could come back. But it is a long shot based upon history. Right. And of course, there is this whole thing that right now, the, the thing that might cause that to happen is something we don't know. Right. right. It's, 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 it's a unknown, it's, unknown. Right. It's the black swan, a black swan event. OK, so how important is winning Iowa? Yeah. I mean, look, on the Republican side, there have only been two nominees who actually won Iowa, Bob Dole in 96, George W. Bush in 2000. And on the Democratic side, there have actually been a slew. Um, most recently, of course, Hillary Clinton, 2016. It's more predictive on the Democratic side than the Republican side. But of course, the fact is we're looking at a Republican caucus in this particular case. All right. So if DeSantis comes from behind and wins, and obviously if the polls don't change dramatically, that would also cause a real um, shaking of confidence in what some of the predictive numbers are in, in states that are further out. Sure. But how much of an uphill climb would he have in some of those earlier states where, frankly, he has struggled? He, he's definitely struggled. In New Hampshire, he's, you know, in fourth place. He's at, you know, only about 10 percent of the vote. In South Carolina, he's in third place behind Nikki Haley in both those states behind Chris Christie in, in the state of New Hampshire. The fact is, given the history of Iowa, winning there I don't think is enough for Ron DeSantis. The fact is, looking at the data, Nikki Haley, if she outperforms in Iowa, is in much better position in the states going forward than DeSantis is to challenge Trump ultimately for the nomination. All right, Harry, thank you very thank much. Thank you. And next, taking on Ted Cruz, I'm gonna speak to a reporter who just confronted the Republican senator because of comments like this. I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. Plus, George Santos getting so many requests for personalized videos that he is jacking up the price. And guess what? People are paying it. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Ted Cruz called out the Republican senator coming under fire over his unequivocal support for Israel's actions in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Here is part of his exchange with journalist Ryan Grimm. Members of the squad 
have tweeted out from the river to the sea. But the answer, I, I'd allow him to say it, but I wouldn't sit there quietly. I'd point out yeah. that you are calling for, once again, the extermination of millions of right. Jews. As I'm sure you know, though, in Likud's platform, it says, you know, from the river to the sea, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. You know, are they suggesting genocide of all Palestinians? Right, of course not. Exactly. So if they're, if they're not, why is the other suggesting genocide? Be because that's what Hamas supports. We've had uh, Defense Minister uh, Gallant. We will eliminate everything. An IDF spokesperson. Our focus is on damage, not on precision. Another former Knesset member. There is one and only solution, which is to completely destroy Gaza before invading it. I mean destruction like what happened in Dresden and Hiroshima without nuclear we weapons. Would you join us in condemning that as well? So I, I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. I, I stand with the people of Israel. Ryan Grimm is now out front. He's the Washington bureau chief for The Intercept. He's also the author of The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution, a new book which is out today. And Ryan, I want to ask you about uh, something crucial that you say in there. But first, um, that interview with Senator Cruz. Um, and, and I hope people will watch the whole thing. It's a really fascinating exchange. At the end, you heard his uh, unequivocal support there, right, that he refused to condemn any actions of Israel uh, or, or the rhetoric that you that you quoted. Um, talk to me about that moment. What did that say to you when you were sitting there having that exchange with him? I, I thought at least he would condemn some of the things that the Israeli government had already condemned. Like you don't have to get in front of them. Like for, for instance, the minister who floated the idea of nuking Gaza uh, was, was roundly like rebuked by other members of the Netanyahu cabinet. So it was striking to me that Cruz couldn't even go as far as members of the very far right Netanyahu cabinet. And I was just trying to, in that interview, find some com common moral plane because, you know, anytime you have anybody on uh, who's remotely critical of Israel, the interview starts with, you know, will you condemn what Hamas did on October 7th? Today is December 5th. We're still having news cycles organized around that question from two months ago. So then it follows that, well, let's also get on a, a, the same moral level and condemn the kind of collective punishment of Palestinians as well. And then we can talk about a way forward. But he wouldn't go there. And that was kind of, uh, once he didn't, you're like, okay, well, I've got, if you condemn nothing, then there's nothing I can tell you that's going to I mean, it really was, I hope everyone will watch, it was a fascinating exchange. Part of the issue, of course, with October 7th, that there has been a hesitancy among some, uh, an unwillingness to condemn what happened on that on that day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting, just a short time ago, I don't know if you saw it, Ryan, but the Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, mm -hmm. who is the chair of the Progressive Caucus, put out a statement. And it says in part, quote, let me be completely clear again that I unequivocally condemn Hamas's use of rape and sexual violence as an act of war. This is horrific and across the world we must stand with our sisters, families and survivors of rape and sexual assault everywhere to condemn this violence and hold perpetrators accountable. Now, um, Ryan, the reason that she's making this statement, as you know, is because she faced criticism uh, for these remarks on Sunday. And it harkens back to October 7th to Dana Bash. I've condemned what Hamas has done. I've condemned Specifically all of women. the actions. Absolutely, the, the rape, the, of course. But I think we have to remember that 
Israel is a democracy. That is why they are a strong ally of ours. And if they do not comply with international humanitarian law, they are bringing themselves to a place that makes it much more difficult strategically for them yeah. to be able to build the kinds of allies to keep public opinion yeah. with them. And frankly, uh, morally, I think we cannot say that one war crime deserves another. That is not what international humanitarian with, with, law says. Okay, with, with respect, I was just asking about the the women, and you turned it back to Israel. I'm asking you about Hamas, in fact. I already answered your question, Dana. I, I said it's horrific, and okay. I think that rape is horrific, sexual assault is horrific. I think that it happens in war situations. Terrorist organizations like Hamas obviously are using these as tools. Mm -hmm. However, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. So then subsequent to that, she had come under a lot of criticism. She's now put out that statement. And, and I'm just wondering, Ryan, that statement that she's now put out may indicate she's under quite a bit of pressure. And it may put her at odds with the most progressive members of her party, which is a crucial part of your book about the squad, where you say 2024 could be a do or die moment for their political futures. And, you know, when you talk about the squad and Jamal Bowman and AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush, why is this such a crucial moment? Well, I think this will be one of the key moments that we look back on, you know, year, years from now and say, remember when Representative Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, was made to put out multiple statements reaffirming the fact that she condemns sexual violence? I think that will be a window into how, how warped this has gotten. Just like I said, it's de December 5th, we're talking about October 7th, and what has happened between October 7th and December 5th is, I think, what history is, is really going to remember from this time. And, and we'll look at moments like this as ways that it was rationalized and, and allowed to continue. So I don't, I don't actually think she's going to uh, face any criticism from the squad for this. There's nobody in the squad, you know, or, or any, I hope anywhere in the world, you know, who wouldn't also just unequivocally condemn sexual violence uh, by anybody at, at any time. Uh, but you do think at this that this moment, this is a turning point for the squad itself. For sure. So you, you've seen, as I write about in 2022, uh, APAC and Democratic Majority for Israel spent nearly, you know, between 40 and 50 million dollars kind of purging critics of Israel uh, from the party, <laughs> trying to kind of minimize the size of the squad and also get uh, squad-like members to kind of moderate their position on Israel and Palestine. Uh, Democratic Majority for Israel was founded January 2019 in, in direct response to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of the squad kind of being sworn into Congress. Not, not in response to anything they necessarily said, just the, the mere fact that there were going to be kind of two Muslim women uh, serving in Congress. Now AIPAC is saying that they might spend up to $100 million in this, in this next cycle. And so I know wow. you had Summer Lee on, on CNN uh, earlier. T uh, so we're gonna, this, this is, the, the question is being called and whether, you know, whether, you know, which direction uh, they, they take will be determined, I think, uh, by this kind of cla upcoming clash with APAC. Oh, it's just an, an amazing to put it down into the framing of this current uh, event and this uh, with Israel, uh, APAC, and of course, uh, what has become an incredibly powerful part of the Democratic Party. Ryan, thank you very much. And I want everyone to know, again, uh, the squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution, Ryan's book, is out today. And next, we have new details tonight on just how much George Santos is now charging for personalized videos. Happy birthday to you. 
And Kim Jong-un tonight crying, breaking down in front of thousands of women. Tonight, George Santos's second act out front is learning that the disgraced former congressman is receiving hundreds and hundreds of requests to record personalized videos on the website Cameo. His fee has now jumped to $350, up from $250 just this morning. And Santos is loving it as he's recording his latest videos, including one of him singing his favorite Taylor Swift song for a customer. My favorite Tia song is definitely going to be Trouble. Hannah, you were trouble when you walked in. That's me. Bye. Sunland Sarfati is out front. Happy, happy birthday. Or I can just do the happy birthday to you. Former Congressman George Santos basking in the glow of the spotlight. Merry Christmas. Have a fantastic new year. Love you all. Wearing his new status like a badge of honor. I, mean, I was a whole congressman up until last Friday. As he amplifies and cashes in on his expulsion from Congress. Hey, look, it is what it is. I'm no longer a congressman. Santos becoming an overnight star on Cameo, leading to a private lunch with the CEO of the celebrity video message platform today in New York. Demand for a personalized video from Santos so great, his latest fee was $350, nearly four times what it originally was just two days ago. Let's talk about best dress, worst dress, right? Look up Glenn Grothman from the state of Wisconsin, and you'll understand what I'm saying when I'm talking about worst dressed in Congress. And even as he actively solicits more, a source with knowledge tells CNN that Santos is receiving hundreds and hundreds of requests a day, including from his former colleague, Senator John Fetterman, purchasing a video to troll Senator Bob Menendez, who is also under federal indictment. Hey, Bobby, uh, look, I don't think I need to tell you, but these people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away, you make him put up or shut up. Santos is quest to blaze his own post-Congress path, ripping a page out of Trump's own playbook. You have haters? Let them hate. Like, just do you, girl. Screw the haters. Brazen. The hell with this place? Defiant. I'm going to make a funny post about roasting Mr. I am former principal and I thought fire alarms opened doors, Jamal Bowman, which I think should be expelled from Congress next. And bitter, threatening to name names and take down some of his former congressional colleagues with him. Now, if the House wants to start different precedent and expel me, that is going to be the undoing of a lot of members of this body because this will haunt them in the future. Santos going after four House members since his departure from Congress, threatening to file ethics complaints against them. All this as Santos leans into the mockery. Everyone, stop assaulting me. I'm being assaulted. <laughs> this entire country has been bullying me just because I'm a proud gay thief. And Santos, now as a former congressman, is no longer subject to campaign finance laws. And a source tells me he's making a great deal of money off Cameo, and he's certainly, Aaron, trying to capitalize it. He was up until 2 a.m. last night taping video messages of himself, of course, trying to meet the big demand of all these requests.
Right, and increasing uh, the prices. <laughs> it's actually amazing. Sometimes, you know, we do feel like we're living in some sort of a weird world. <laughs> All right, Sunlin, thank you very much, Sunlin Sarfati. And next, Kim Jong-un, talk about a weird world, caught crying in public, making a desperate plea to the women in his country. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.